0: Hello, hello. Welcome back, y'all. So this podcast began as treatment notes on election night in 2016. Without knowing much about Trump, I knew some of what we as a nation could expect based on his public behaviors for decades. After all, the best predictor of future behavior is past and current behavior. What's clear from decades of direct observation of Trump is that he has a rigid, idiosyncratic behavior pattern, it is predictable, and it is avoidable, which we'll get into. But a nation is a system, just like a family is a system. And all the same dynamics that play out in families when a type like Trump is at the helm was going to befall our national family. This requires no special equipment or theoretical construct to understand, just by directly observing his actions and behaviors over the past 30 years, one could easily predict how he would behave. Or at least, that's what I thought. I thought it was clear as day, but yet, this was and is not obvious to everyone, regardless of party. And let me say that I 100% believe that these observable traits and patterns can and do manifest in blue team and red team members, that the blue team might just as easily hook, line, and sink into this trap with some other malignant narcissist. This is not about party. This is about psychology, and in this case, abnormal psychology. And as our culture increasingly promotes narcissism through social media and technology, this could really happen to anyone. I took it for granted before the election that obviously everyone saw what I saw. It was directly observable, but apparently not. And over the past three and a half years, we've had to suffer as a nation. Now me, sitting in my office, being able to predict bad outcomes and avoid them, that's something that serves me and my clients very well in therapy, but helps no one outside the therapy room. Me predicting what seems like obvious behavioral patterns in my office, shouting into the wind, helps no one. And that's what I'm really trying to do here with this podcast experiment is help people avoid the next iceberg. That's what I do. That's what I've always done. When I was a kid, I got an award for it. They gave me the Acts of Loving Kindness Award for earnestly attempting to heal the world at age 15, something that my medical and Jewish family ethics primed me for, I'm sure. I want to heal the world, even still today. It's silly. My hope in this podcast is to help you develop your own integrated psychological lens, just like in therapy, to gain insight and awareness, maybe a new perspective, a tool, and grow our shared consciousness by a little with each episode. To that end, on today's pod, we'll be discussing the costs of emotional illiteracy, defining those terms, what is emotional illiteracy, and what are the real costs. And talking with two experts today, will increase our EQ by learning what to look for in order to spot these types, these traits, these psychological malignancies that are identifiable, predictable, and avoidable. There are so many diseases and so much suffering that happens because of unconsciousness. Think of the harms we do at the micro level of our relationships and the macro level of our existence as a species. Mostly, these harms are unintentional and unconscious. Now, not all diseases are on the spectrum of consciousness, obviously. Sometimes, insight cures nothing but ignorance. But much of human suffering can be traced back to unconsciousness, and much healing comes from increased consciousness. There's this guy who likes to rev his engine and burn donuts into my street every night around 1am. I'm super glad that he's finding his joy, but... Him being unconscious about all the other people who are affected, all the other people who are suffering from loss of sleep. It's like, what can I do to help elevate this person's consciousness? Not shame him or scare him. I want to elevate his consciousness so he can consider others into his schema and find a way to meet his needs for revving with the community's needs for restful sleep cycles. That's a relational approach to living with others. It's not how we govern. It's not really how we think or tend to treat each other. And we'll keep going back to that idea throughout the pod. How to get your needs met without having to trample on others. It is the great quandary of our age, perhaps of our species. And recently it's been plastered all over the internet. I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people. Just that when we do, we feel happier. We live healthier. It turns out, caring is good for us. And I will attach in the show notes some notes about the studies that support the idea that in fact caring for others is good Not just for happiness levels, but for longevity and stress resilience and reducing depressive symptoms. There's a lot of data today, and I just think when people know better, they can do better. So I'll put good data out there in good faith that reasonable people can convene on what's basically good for humans. Let's get into the costs of our emotional illiteracy as a nation. What does it mean, emotional illiteracy? It's not unintelligence. Let's start there, because there's plenty of intelligent people in business and finance and Silicon Valley and the sciences and the arts and education and sales, but they're not reading something that's here and present. Their intelligent brains are somehow bypassing their limbic systems. The limbic system is the emotional processing center of the brain that has been evolving with us for like 150 million years. Let me say that again. Our emotional centers of our brain have been evolving with us for millions of years, but most people aren't using the central part of our neurology to its highest potential, mostly because emotion has been misunderstood and devalued by the West. I was researching and came across the cutest little cartoon graphic of a brain with a heart in it, and the article was entitled, Emotional Illiteracy, When Your Brain Has No Heart. when your brain has no heart. That's a great working definition. I'm going to put that article up on the show notes for anyone interested. But let me just read you a couple excerpts from the article. Quote, So many people suffer from emotional illiteracy. They may have all kinds of other skills and plenty of titles and degrees, but they have the emotional processing ability of a three-year-old. And I think culturally, that's largely where many of us stopped. They go on. Human beings are much more than just a bunch of linguistic, mathematical, or technical skills. We are, above all else, social and emotional creatures. This is something that we forget most of the time, and most educational institutions do not see it as important. Whoa. That seems so true to me. Um, That was absolutely my teaching in science, for sure. In fact, in our Western system, it's considered a weakening, a liability, which is totally backwards to what, with emotional intelligence, we can see today. People today with heightened EQ have higher happiness rates that are correlated with all kinds of positive benefit. I think in the olden days, they didn't have EQ built yet. They had emotional types and unemotional types, And people were scared of and disturbed by their emotions. They were not well understood yet. And you probably wanted to be an unemotional type if those were the only two options. There were countless benefits to being unemotional. And in terms of the harms, the costs of that emotional illiteracy, let's look back just one generation there is a link between emotionally cut off cultures and the rise of fascism and racism. There's a really important book called My Grandmother's Hands by a guy named Resma Menachem. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'll put it up in the show notes. Resma is a therapist who specializes in trauma and body-centered psychotherapy. His observations through decades of working with folks are so important to hear. One of the things I've really internalized from his work is that people, and in this case, European white people, could never have done the things they've done if they were tuned into their bodies or using more of their brains. That it is only by cutting off emotionally, severing mind and body, the exact exalted values of Western civilization as luck would have it, that the atrocities could be committed. Think of a stereotypic Germanic culture that values emotional restraint and effectiveness. We can look back through history and see how that kind of emotional detachment or emotional bypassing made it possible for a Hitler type to come into power. In a culture that valued their emotions, their limbic systems, or being embodied, they'd have sniffed out the threat, just like many sniffed it out then and now. We have, after all, evolved threat sensors through millions and millions and millions of years. It is only by cutting off that evolutionarily favored emotional data that these dangerous types get missed. And the costs are severe and traumatic and avoidable if you know what to look for. And that's what we're gonna talk about in just a bit with two different psychological experts. Beyond the historic view, when I get really present and think about the harms to various communities just over the past couple of years, I get flooded. Honestly, if I don't block it out, it's very upsetting. So I can see why people block it out. In order to function, we have to be able to compartmentalize a lot, we all do. But when it goes into the unconscious space and stays there, then it never gets dealt with and the harms never recede. We've just pushed it out of our minds. So when I talk about doing harm and the real cost of our emotional illiteracy today, it's measured in human death and suffering. Currently, at the time of this recording, there are more than 200,000 dead Americans on our way to 2 to 6 million if we stay on this course with the now COVID positive Mad King at the helm. Now, before we get to our experts, let me tell you what I saw before the election. So hopefully we can increase our EQ in time for this election. Here's what was clear. When I was in college, Trump was used as the prime example of textbook narcissism. And not just in psych classes, English literature, history, film, in any class we took, if they needed to refer to an archetypal narcissist, Trump was always the example. (laughs) It was very clear Just based on his public behaviors, like buying his own tabloid for self-promotion, also through his marriages and divorces, it was clear he did not excel at human relationships. He was very idealizing and very devaluing. In interviews, he was self-aggrandizing, prone to exaggeration. And to me, as a young kid, just came off like a pig. What I understood was that if elected— he would have this stamp of narcissism wherein he would necessarily and automatically devalue whatever he came across while simultaneously exalting himself. That's the idiosyncratic tick of narcissism. The compulsion to ruin and devalue whatever comes into purview, to spoil it, to exalt oneself above all others. So if he came across a policy or a rule or most people... He would have to devalue them in order to exalt himself. And that's largely what we've seen throughout the getting to know you period of the first term. As a specific example, people have wondered why did Trump dismantle the pandemic response team back in 2018? That might have been useful. And if you try to rationalize your way through it, like so many questions about his motives behind so many policy decisions, you'll miss the truest, deepest answer. Because he had to. It's a compulsion, a reflex, an idiosyncratic tick over which he has no control. He has to maintain his delusions of grandeur or else he falls into terrible delusions of persecution. This again is the trope of narcissism. What's unique about Trump is just how severely delusional he is. We all have some narcissism. Some self-centered focus is good for us. Too little, we neglect ourselves. Too much, we become full of ourselves. But it's a trait we all have to some extent. But in the bell curve of personality traits, (laughs) Trump is what we call an outlier. The severity of his traits are atypical. There's many narcissistic people, meaning they have threads of narcissism. But most are not malignant, toxic, untreatable. Many people have just endured traumas at home that wounded their sense of self. Again, what's unique about how Trump was raised is not just the violence and the alcoholism, but with racism. To be told that you are better than other people while simultaneously being told you're a piece of shit is quite destabilizing. To this day, he is not someone who can handle taking full responsibility as it would destroy his fragile veneer of superiority. That's the thing, the fragileness of this structure. And again, it wouldn't matter what party it was, but anyone who vacillates between extreme delusions, meaning fixed false beliefs about their grandeur or their persecution, is not a stable type. And as far as I know, The job of president, which deals in all kinds of delicate negotiations, especially security obligations, really needs a stable disposition. And this one trait alone is just the tip of the iceberg, meaning that's just the part we see by looking very far off into the distance. But we know there's more vast aspects that remain hidden underneath the surface, and those can actually do the most harm. That was partially revealed during the Republican primaries leading up to that election. What we saw was a rare, perfect peek into psychological dysfunction. Prior to that close-up, I only saw the narcissism. It was enough for me to whiff out a no just because of how bad it would be for a country to have a devaluing narcissist at the helm. People who are recovering from narcissistic abuse at the hands of a narcissistic parent know exactly how bad this is for people. And during those debates, he exhibited devaluation and exaltation at an alarming rate. Not occasional, but a constant trope of his existence. He exhibited splitting behavior, cutting into people, trying to pair them against each other. He's been quoted as saying he likes to do that. Yeah, so do most kids. His tick is to devalue whatever comes in front of him and simultaneously exalt himself. That's the tick of the narcissist. Devalue whatever comes into your purview while simultaneously exalting yourself. Exaltation and devaluation. Nothing in between. Prior to the election, I'd seen the malignant narcissism, the devaluation of others, the exaltation of self, the splitting, and the general chaos. And for me... That was more than enough to know how he would behave in office. The night after the election, I began watching every Trump documentary I could find, everything from his lifestyles of the rich and famous era to financial documentaries. It was fascinating. He's truly, truly a unique character. I wish he could feel that deep down inside, but he probably doesn't. It's very sad. And also... We need to move on. What I learned by going through all that archival footage and the legal records and all those financial documents, all those plaintiffs, all those people testifying to the ruin that he left them in. And I realized, ah, shit, (laughs) he's not just a malignant, meaning untreatable and toxic narcissist. So get ready for global devaluation, everybody. The field of psychology has advanced quite a bit since I was in college. One of the major changes was how to conceive of and treat the people who used to be considered access to personality disorders, like Trump. No longer do we just categorize him by the visible traits, like his narcissism. We've learned there are a host of often invisible traits that go along with this pathology. Four main sets of traits are now collapsed into one cluster B category. And when you meet someone with these traits, it's useful to know what you're working with and what to expect. Now I was seeing some of the other notes of the cluster buck, the cluster B clusterfuck. In the case of the mad king, he has the narcissistic traits that we've discussed, as well as antisocial traits which are known as sociopathy, as well as histrionic and borderline attributes, which explain his flair for drama and chaos, but which are less dangerous, more just annoying. He really has the whole cluster, you know? That's why I call him a cluster buck. It's not a diagnosis. It's an inevitability when dealing with someone with this mental disorder. After the unpresidential debate the other night, newscasters and pundits were trying to describe the shit show they'd witnessed. They called it a dumpster fire, a train wreck. But I think more specifically, it was a cluster buck. A cluster B specific clusterfuck. It's an inevitable, foregone conclusion that someone with this level of pathology could possibly behave any differently than he behaved. Just like his elevated narcissism, He's also very sociopathic. You know, we all have some sociopathy, some ability to break rules and disregard others, but he's so high on the sociopathy scale, I really had no idea from his public-facing persona. It wasn't until I saw the financials that I understood what we were really going to be in for, the grift of a lifetime. And sure enough, everything from bankruptcies to lawsuits, hiding his financial information, violating the Emoluments Clause, becoming enriched by the job, attempting to move international summits to his resorts, changing the tax code, obviously. He stays at his own resorts and charges America for it. It's outrageous. So you always got to watch for the grift with this one, including with the newest COVID positive situation. He's not just selling his snake oil, or more recently, drinking the snake oil and getting quite sick from it. You got to watch your pockets with this one and your hubcaps. He's a very talented con man, and with the narcissistic devaluation on board, there doesn't even need to be a con some of the time. My fundamental belief is that a can of tomato soup would be a less dangerous, less hookable, and less toxic figurehead than the current option. By understanding who he is, we realize we can't control him. We must contain him. People who wish that he would behave differently, he won't. We got to come into acceptance about who and what we're dealing with. It's not political. It's psychopathology. Through our consciousness raising, we become the adults in the room who say, okay, enough. This is needless suffering. It doesn't have to go this way. So first, we're going to talk to Dr. Cindy Lermond, a forensic psychologist in Los Angeles about EQ in our systems, building hope, and what kinds of traits and characteristics to look for to assess for threats in our leaders. Can you tell people what you do and kind of how you came to it? Forensic psychology, like what does that mean?
1: Forensic psychology is where psychology and law come together. A forensic psychologist is often asked to render psychological opinions about legal matters. Here in the state of California, a lot of times that means letting the court know whether an individual is competent to stand trial, whether they're not guilty by reason of insanity, whether they are certifiable as an offender with a mental health disorder,
0: yeah, it's an interesting intersection, like you said, between like psychology and law and also where mental illness becomes criminalized and crimes get committed because people aren't well. Those people would not have committed those crimes had they not been unwell.
1: Yes, it has to have been established that the symptoms of their illness played a large part in their crimes and fueled them. There are legal criteria that need to be met there.
0: Yeah. So how do you figure out what's insanity or sanity, since you have a sort of legal definition and because the stakes are so specifically high in your exact field?
1: In our field, when you're looking at insanity, luckily you have some guidelines in the state of California, someone has to have a serious mental disorder. So I can't go out and drink a bunch of alcohol or do a bunch of meth and commit a violent crime and say, I was out of my wits. I didn't know what I was doing. You must have a a disorder that altered your thinking such that you either couldn't appreciate the nature of your actions or you couldn't tell right from wrong. A lot of times we have individuals who are delusional and believe what they're doing is right and they're protecting themselves or their families. There's something really wrong with our system that to get the care that keeps them well, they have to do something pretty serious and terrible. Ours is not a preventative program insofar as a crime has already happened. It's preventative going forward and and it's really good at that. But there's something really broken in the system that this is how you get this level of care.
0: For everyone who's living through a lot of insanity right now and feeling like these are very dark times and very grim circumstances, and for people who feel like the stakes are very high and they feel very angry or oppressed or whatever people are really processing all that darkness right now, do you see
1: hope? I do, absolutely. I see a lot of hope. All of this stuff had to come to the surface. And that's what 2020 is about. It's about bringing the darkness to light, to bear witness to it, to talk about it. We are talking about things that have been pushed under the carpet for so long. And yeah, people are angry about them, but it's about time we're getting angry about them. The social injustice movements and all of that, like, Thank God we're finally talking about it. That's what we do in the world of psychology. And I explain this to clients all the time at the beginning, like what we're gonna do is think of the subconscious like a house and we're gonna go up into the attic. I'm gonna look around and find all those boxes that you know, have been shoved in a corner and labeled with shame and fear and anger and trauma. And we're gonna go and we're gonna take those boxes down from the attic together. And we're gonna put it out here and we're gonna look at it together. And we're going to figure out a better way of making sense of all this and making sense of your story. And we're going to put it back in that box and relabel it, you know, not with shame and fear and darkness. We're going to relabel it with hope and pride and sense of self and worth and so many other things. That's what this country is doing. We're healing. It's painful. It's ugly. Relationships are being stretched to their limits. But my God, thank God we're doing it. Do you have people in your
0: family who you try specifically to heal with? Do you have people in your world that have been
1: ruptured by by all of this? I have a good friend, and we're in the process of trying some healing. We have a group of friends, and one of my dear friends lost three members to COVID within a really short period of time, three family members. Oh my God. Devastating, right? Traumatic. So- She's going through that and another friend in our group was posting on Facebook how it's not real and how it's a hoax and people shouldn't wear masks. And it was devastating to her. And this is one of my closest friends and he's posting this really painful stuff. And when she points it out to him, he keeps going. He also has posted saying there's no systemic racism in the police system he's never been involved in the police system. I'm dealing with it all the time. And for him to say that is painful and it hurts. I'm trying to find a way to hold on to this person that I, I care so deeply about who's lost his way.
0: Right. Like there's a detachment from the harms and I'm not quite sure how to help people connect that like that's harmful.
1: Yes, that that is harmful. And there's not just a detachment, there's a dismissal of it, a disregard for other people's experiences. And we've got to find a way to be curious about each other again. We've got to find a way to want to understand where other people are coming from. So many people aren't talking about things. On a big level, people are getting angry and talking about them, but on a smaller level, people are just getting divided. And losing relationships.
0: I know. That's why I'm doing the goddamn podcast, because it's like a relational crisis. I like, can't talk to my dad right now. My dad, who is like my hero, world's best dad, but he has been watching Fox News for 20 years or whatever, and there's this like subtle, imperceptible little movement away from truth that makes him misinformed, but like the way that it comes out, it makes me lose my top. And so I end up regressing to when I was like a teenager and I'm like, are we here again?
1: I don't want to do this again. (laughs) We are here again. (laughs) I literally
0: thought I'm making this podcast because I have to learn how to talk to my father. That is one of the top items is how are we going to mend as a nation if the nation's top menders don't know how to mend? Right. I come from a family of healers, and we're all totally divided. It's outrageous. (laughs) We're screwed. So much for the hope. (laughs) (laughs) This is what is happening in America. A lot of families who cannot talk to each other, friends who cannot talk to each other, the reactivity, the misinformation, and a sort of lack of curiosity about the other, like a totally non-relational model of just cut and cancel in our culture Mm -hmm. that is so psychologically unwell. And it's interesting to see it be so prevalent. What do you think about that trait? And how did that become so central in our culture from your observations as a psychologist?
1: Wow, that's a great question. First blush reaction more as a human than as a psychologist is that we've gotten caught up in our worlds and we filter in information that align with our beliefs. And we live in a world where there's anonymity and people can go on the internet and just say things and do things, and there's no responsibility and accountability. And we just end up getting more and more divided. We all think we're right, and we're not feeding ourselves with information that has us thinking more complexly about things. There's this great poem. I was reading it this morning, and it said, Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And in our society, it's all about understand me, understand me. Totally. That doesn't lend to that curiosity. First, understand where the other person is coming from. We're not going to agree, but where do you find those points where you might be able to hold on to?
0: Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you bring up that prayer because I was trying to figure out how I was ever going to talk to my dad. And I was trying to figure out what I would say to him. And this wave came over me and that exact phrase came to my mind about, helped me seek to understand rather than to be understood. And the whole thing shifted in my mind. I wanted to reach out to my dad and ask him about his story, how he is doing and what he thinks about during this time. And I just want to connect with him. Because when I was a teenager, we would have these all night long fights. It was never seeking to understand. It was seeking to be understood at all costs. And now I'm like, this is a better way. In one of our meetings, you gave a really clear definition of what we're kind of looking for in some of these traits with the MMPI and the scales. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: I was talking about the psychopathy checklist. That's the assessment tool we use to assess who is more psychopathic. Really, we're looking at traits of narcissism, a lack of empathy for others, a disregard for others. A willingness to lie, cheat, steal, do whatever it takes. We're also looking at charm for some of them. Not always, but a charmingness. They can kind of woo others. A lot of times there's like a superficiality, like they can present well and talk about a lot of topics, but there's not a lot of knowledge and depth. They will feed off of others and use others and go from person to person a lot of times to get their needs met. They're pretty self-consumed.
0: I remember reading at some point that a certain percentage of CEOs score high on psychopathy and that sort of thing.
1: You're referring to Snakes in Suits. Snakes in Suits. It's a great book about psychopathy in the boardroom, basically. Interesting. Yeah, it's really good. So many people think of psychopathy as being serial killers and all of the criminals who hurt others, but psychopathy plays a big role in a lot of white-collar crimes. I'm at a loss to know what that research says about what might draw someone to that role. I think it's similar to what might draw a lot of people to positions of power. And sometimes that takes on a life of its own and you want more and more.
0: This has been written very anciently to us, right, about power being a very corrupting agent in our human lives. Why is power so corrupting? Do you know anything
1: about that? So there's this great documentary, Client Nine, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, it's a wonderful glimpse into how power led him to make some less than desirable choices, or maybe they were quite desirable at the time. You know, we see this with celebrities and athletes so caught up with the power that they struggled to recognize limits and get self-destructive. It can be painful to watch.
0: Do you ever watch on the Discovery Channel? They have something like shark versus bear. Who would win, Right. Yes. I think what's happening culturally and politically is that someone like Putin seems to have the strings over a guy like Trump. And I'm curious if in like the shark versus bear fantasy match, who you think would be more dangerous or more scary?
1: If I were to answer this as just me, I don't know if he's a shark or the (laughs) the bear, Uh, but I think the scarier one is someone like... Putin, because of his savviness, Trump is not savvy. We're, we're all talking about it and watching it and seeing it. Whether there might be some who might not see it as a problem, he's not savvy at it. Whereas someone more savvy would be able to have more followers and get more accomplished. Putin's pretty
0: effective in that
1: role. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is.
0: He's competent.
1: yes. He is. That's a a great word for it.
0: Yeah, my money is on that one too. I don't know if he's the shark or the bear, but I think he wins in the creep contest.
1: I'm gonna go with he's the shark. He's the shark. Just kind of creeps up on you. Dun dun, dun 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 dun.
0: So I'm driving home from my writer's retreat. I get a text that I need to interview a friend's stepfather, who apparently taught a course at UCLA. John, of all things, the psychology of Donald Trump. Mind blown. How had I not known this? I had to talk to John immediately. Dr. John Snivy is a partially retired psychologist with experience in all kinds of interesting dimensions of civic life. He's worked with police. He's worked to house and treat homeless people. He teaches now part-time And like with Cindy, John gave an open hearted, interesting and moving interview, which I'll post in its entirety as a bonus episode down the road. Here, I'm just extracting a thin slice to help us learn what to look for in assessing psychopathy. Let me ask you about this class that you taught. What was it called? The the psychology of Trump at the extension course? What was that?
2: That's an interesting story. So early on in the last election, looking at Trump and listening to him stuff like that, it was obvious that the guy is mentally ill. Yes. Now, you don't even have to be a psychologist to figure that out, right? I mean, it's just like obvious.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's obvious to us, but I guess I'm curious to see what are the things that you notice that make it so obvious to you? What pattern do you see and how do we help others see what is really so blatant?
2: Well, first of all, Donald Trump is basically Adolf Hitler, a Mussolini- all rolled in one kind of psychopathological system right he's narcissistic he lies all the time he has no empathy he doesn't care about other people very very political very manipulative you know so all of these things are are fairly obvious and he's abusive and he's a bully i mean you know that that's pretty much the same picture
0: psychopathy is psychopathy
2: right exactly So I'm listening to this guy and said, I said, what kind of diagnosis would I give to this guy? And then I said, "Uh, you know, this guy is a borderline personality disorder. Absolutely, totally, completely fits the diagnosis. So I decided, and and there's a lovely video, by the way, about cluster B borderline personality disorder. The cluster Bs. Yeah, which I played in my class on. (laughs) But so I decided to do a class called psychopathology meets democracy. Okay. So I presented to the powers that be within UCLA Osher. The people who know me and that I've talked for in the program thought it was a great idea. But when the dean heard that title for this program, Psychopathology Meets Democracy, Donald Trump, they flipped out, right? I said, well, you can't do that. I mean, and, well, they couldn't say they can't do that because of academic freedom, right? You can't tell a professor you can't teach something that's obviously an important topic. But they said, you know, well, you know, maybe you could do this and maybe you could do that. But I actually had it all made and ready. And then I said, well, I won't do it. So three months later, after Trump, you know, people see what's going on, they said, we we want you to do it. I said, okay. And I did it. It was fine. It was a really interesting presentation. I diagnosed him. I played this video. I compared him to this various things. And I opened the thing with three different quotes from a 1941 speech that Lindbergh gave, which was his Make America Great speech. And it was anti-Semitic, it was isolationist, it was hostile, it was the same crap that Trump is saying, literally, right? It was really a great class. I enjoyed diagnosing him, was, whatever. And nothing happened, nobody, nobody called me up, nobody threatened my life. There was one guy who called a dean and complained, but okay. nothing ever happened.
0: You know, it's interesting when I was coming up in the field, and I'm sure you have this experience too, it was thought that psychologists needed to really not get involved in anything outside of the psychology consult room. Anything outside of the therapy room was like somehow outside of a therapist's purview, or it was thought of like ethically as a boundary. And I'm talking to a lot of psychologists now who all grew up in that frame and who are all going like, yeah, but this is different. What's your sense of that? How do you navigate that boundary?
2: Well, that was, you know, that was a Goldwater policy, you know, that was primarily for psychiatrists that really diagnosing people without having seen them in the consultation room or anything like that is not appropriate, right? Of course, it doesn't apply to psychologists and lots of psychologists have opined about uh, Donald Trump's behavior. And if you take that whole issue in context with teletherapy, I mean, When I'm diagnosing Donald Trump, I'm diagnosing him via teletherapy. I see him on TV talking. So Mm -hmm. he could be one of my patients and he's talking about stuff. And now the whole issue is moot because of COVID-19 and because everything's happening online. So I don't see people face-to-face anymore. I see them online. So what's the moral issue? Wow. I mean, I would be more than happy to diagnose you online. You know, I'll do a diagnostic interview with you and you'll say stuff and I'll say, oh, this is what's going on.
0: It's COVID. that kind of cracked it open, huh?
2: You bet. At this point in time, the whole thing is moot.
0: That's really interesting.
2: Many, many, many people have opined. People, A bunch of psychiatrists have signed documentation and so on down the line. So the whole thing is moot. The real issue is why are people attracted to Adolf Hitler, to Mussolini, to authoritarian government? what is that about? Why do they process information inappropriately? Why is it okay when people lie? Why is it okay for the German public to hear Adolf Hitler openly say, I am going to eliminate the Jewish race? And they vote for him, right? And Donald Trump is saying, the problem with the COVID-19 issue is, is going away, and people keep dying. So it's the same dynamic People just are not understanding and hearing or able to process the information appropriately, which is part of the problem. Why do authoritarians, why do dictators who have psychopathological problems, obviously, right? I mean, if you want to rule the world, right, and kill millions of people, there's something wrong with you. I mean, you don't have to be a psychologist to figure that out.
0: Are you a radical leftist? No. My dad, for example, and he's a conservative man. If he heard someone say, Donald Trump is like a Mussolini type. Yeah. I think he would just say, that's obviously a quack. That's obviously a crazy thing to say. That's not true. He's not Mussolini. What would you kind of say to people who would be like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a rationalization. And that's, a, you know, he's processing that information through the lens of somebody who's feeling like there needs to be some kind of powerful change taking place in society. And it's okay that Trump is doing what he's doing and saying what he's saying. It's okay because he is making the kind of changes that I think are really important because I see America as slipping, as falling apart, as not the way it used to be. And I don't like that. And I'm willing to accept all kinds of crazy crap from some guy, even to the point of costing people's lives in order to feel better about the direction that we're going, which is kind of like, Let's, uh, let's take a break. Let's stop.
0: When I was in college 20 years ago or whatever, Donald Trump was a younger guy and he was always in the news. And so I just knew that this really egomaniacal putz was just always doing bad behavior around town. And when I got to college, they would talk about narcissism when they asked for like, what's an example of a narcissistic brain, a narcissistic personality? It was always Donald Trump. It was like the shorthand For narcissists, now that he has come to power and the narcissism has been so aggrandized over the years and he's become so much more empowered to be doing whatever his mind tells him, I was a little more surprised, honestly, to see the level of psychopathy. Right. But not in like a normal, average human way where like on an MMPI, we all score somewhere on the narcissism scale, but in a way that's like off the charts, outlier, malignancy. Again, it's so obvious, because I've been growing in this stuff for so many years, but what are some of the things that you notice that people can start to go, oh, that's too much psychopathy, or that's too much narcissism? What should people look for so this doesn't keep happening?
2: Well, first of all, personality disorders are one of the most mysterious and yet obvious diagnoses in psychology and psychiatry. It's very, very difficult for the public to understand that Trump's behavior is actually a mental illness very serious mental illness. And uh, that can create all kinds of problems. Now, most borderline personality disorders get into a lot of trouble. You know, they kill themselves and they get disorganized and rehospitalized, you know, crazy stuff like that happens to them. But the cluster B, you know, is a combination of narcissism, of uh, egocentrism, of manipulation, of early trauma, deep-seated anger and resentment, a lack of empathy, and an inability to really understand people and empathize with their concerns and worries. What's going on here is that Donald Trump was traumatized by his father. His father was an alcoholic, he was a racist, he was abusive to the family, and he was abusive to Donald. Now, Donald, like most kids who get abused by very angry parents, develop personality disorder. Some of them get worse or better, whatever. But Donald is devoted to protecting himself against the pain he experienced in the traumatic interactions he had with his father. He's protecting himself over and over and over again. And he'll say anything rather than take a narcissistic injury, a hit by saying something like, I was wrong. He can't say that. He's not able psychologically to say that. And it's so serious with Donald Trump that every single day, in every way, he's again protecting himself against the pain that he experienced because his dad abused him. It's just book, simple diagnosis.
0: It's really very textbook. Yeah.
2: Trump is a very seriously mentally ill guy. And he's proven it. He's more than willing to kill people. Everything that's in Trump's world that doesn't make him feel happy is a narcissistic injury. So that's what he's protecting against. He has this wall of lies and psychopathology to prevent the arrows of narcissistic injury from entering his psyche. He'll destroy democracy. He'll kill people. It makes absolutely no difference. And this is a process that you've seen with Adolf Hitler, with Mussolini, with dictators. Look at what Maduro's doing in Venezuela.
0: It's like it seems really far off. Right. A couple years ago, that would have seemed off the wall. And now it seems inevitable.
2: It's inevitable.
0: It seems inevitable that this election will be smashed and broken by whatever processes. And we're going to be down this rabbit hole. And it's because people weren't able to sniff out something that is glaringly obvious to you and I. But it shouldn't be therapists just who know how to suss out bullshit. Right. This should be in doubt in every child. Every child should know who's basically good and who's basically bad, who's going to be dangerous for them. We've evolved brains past our hind brain to detect threat. Our brains are very evolved to do this. And yet we didn't see this threat.
2: Some people feel adrift and they feel like a strong man like Trump and Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Maduro can pull, you know, as a strength to pull the system back into place and to make things okay and to basically reactionarily, you know, move things back to where they were before.
0: And so somebody could just key into that fear in people and could really manipulate that.
2: Exactly. And people feel disenfranchised. They feel like let's make America first again right? Because we were not first. So that is important to say, because people don't say, let's make America first, because they think we're okay. Well, they think we're not okay. So that's what Trump is marketing. And that's what he's saying. And that's attractive to some people who feel like they're being left out.
0: I think about the tree that Trump comes from. You talked about Trump's father, the culture of supremacy, and he's not done a lot of inner work to not be like that.
2: He will never do that. Ever, never, never. Because that is like opening Pandora's box.
0: Yeah, that can't happen for him.
2: Oh, no. But every psychologist or therapist makes a decision when you see a borderline patient like Donald Trump, and then you have to make a decision. Am I going to open up this guy? (laughs) Right? Am I going to open up Pandora's box? And what will happen if I do? Right? And a lot of times what will happen is that they will kill themselves. So a woman comes to you and says, you know, I think something happened to me. I don't know what it is. And so you have to make a choice as a therapist. You have to say, do I really want to hear this? Do I really want to work with this person and then have them find out what it is and then kill themselves, right? So with Donald Trump, you don't want to do that. And you will never do that because he is so highly defended that he will not let anybody ever get close enough to him to shatter that narcissistic barrier he puts between himself and others. So you open up that door and you better have a psychiatric hospital available. You better have a psychiatrist to give you meds. You better have all kinds of support stuff because when that dime bursts, you're in big trouble and it will never burst for Donald.
0: I think about that a lot in the years that I spent in training at different clinics. Whenever there was a cluster B type person. It was like all hands on deck to deal with a containment strategy, that there was not going to be a therapy strategy because they'll destroy the place.
2: Right, yeah. You don't have the resources, you don't have the capability, you have no expert there. They'll immediately start splitting.
0: Talk about splitting, John. Tell me what you mean by splitting. It's it's an important point.
2: I love splitting because I tell this story all the time. So a good borderline is a splitter. They want to make people fight with each other. So my grandson, tiny grandson, comes up to me and says, Papa, you know, I'd like to have a cookie. And I say, you know what? Dinner's coming up. So why don't you just wait a couple of minutes and then we're going to have dinner and you can have a cookie. So he goes to my wife and says, Grammy, can I have a cookie? And she says, sure. So he comes over and takes the cookie. I said, well, why are you doing that? He says, well, Grammy told me it was okay. And so I go to my wife and say, look, you're undermining my authority here and she and I have a fight. So what has he done? He gets the cookie and she and I fight. And that's a split.
0: Yeah, it's important that the developmental age is about how old?
2: Well, these seven, six, seven, <laughs> five. You know, I mean, they understand very clearly that the adults in the system are vulnerable to this split and Donald Trump does it all the time. He even bragged about it. He says, I like to pit my staff against each other. Quote, and that's what he does. You know, I like this person. I'm going to turn this person against this person. And he turns on other people all the time. The mother's milk of a cluster B borderline is chaos because that was their family life. And that's what they're used to.
0: That's the unconscious repetition.
2: Exactly. They're restarting their family dynamic in their real life. And that's where they feel good. They feel like they can manage that. That's the energy that propels them through this process.
0: Well, I hope some of that was useful. Share it with people who might benefit. My hope is to build a new, emotionally intelligent base of reasonable people coming together for what is basically good for humans. I'll see you next time. Cheers.